Welcome to Artistic Beginnings. I'm Mitch. And I'm Melody. We're siblings who grew up working in the entertainment industry and were deeply impacted by the arts. I'm a professional actor, singer, and dancer working in Los Angeles and New York, still pursuing an artistic career. I, on the other hand, am no longer pursuing that career. I went on to become a researcher, though I'm still involved in the creative industry. Artistic Beginnings is all about the winding artistic paths that creatives follow in their lives. We share these inspirational stories with you so that you can learn and grow as a creative. So, let's get into it. I didn't really know what Broadway was. Like, it was a thing. I had these recordings. There were shows. But I lived in a little bit of a bubble in Southern California. And I didn't really understand, like, what, like, that Broadway was a place. And that's where all of this stuff was created. We would go to, to national tours that would come through. But I didn't know that it was just like this vast art form that existed. I, I, there was Les Mis and, and Andrew Lloyd Webber. And that, in that, in my world, was like most of what existed. I was like 12, 11 or 12. And we went to see Les Mis. The tour was in town. And my memory of this and like how, where this falls in the show might be incorrect. So you know feel free to it's, it's a memory me. it's memory though so you know yeah we are not lame Miz buffs over here <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so i went to the bathroom at intermission as we all do and of course there was a really long line and i came back to the second act late because you know long line in the bathroom we were sitting up in the balcony but there was like this little area the mezzanine area in the auditorium and I remember walking back to go to my seat and Eponine was singing on my own. And I it like stopped me dead in my tracks. And I was just completely mesmerized by her performance and by what she was saying and what she was doing. And in that moment, I was like, I want to do this. I want to tell stories through song. This is what I'm going to do. And that was sort of like the turning point where I was like, this is what I'm doing with my life. I didn't really understand, you know what that meant. <laughs> but that was kind of the moment. Do you remember the first few actions you took based on that? Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, okay. So we'd, we'd have to go back a little further. I had this weird physical deformity where I, I had a bone in my foot that grew to full adult size while the rest of me was child size and I couldn't walk. And they mm. could, it took them three years to figure out that this is what was going on. So I was taking dance classes up until this point and then I had to stop dancing because I couldn't walk. And my poor mother, my father worked shift work. So my poor mother was like trying to find a way to keep her very hyperactive theatrical child entertained. Mm. So she enrolled me in voice lessons, which was like kind of a good idea. It was a good idea. Yes, artistically. But like as far as keeping me quiet, it did not. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> So I feel like it was probably around that time that I started doing voice. Like there was a, a gap in between me stopping dancing and being like, you know, I need, I still needed an outlet. And I think that kind of was the impetus for me starting voice lessons. Hmm. That's so interesting. I didn't know that about you. Huh. Yes. I am an onion melody. So many layers. Ooh. <laughs> we're going to dig into all of those. We, so we are chefs. <laughs> we should change our show to the artistic chefs and oh we'll just God. call each of our guests a different fruit or vegetable. I was going to say, if you just stopped ways... with the fruit and thought onion was a fruit, I was going to be very disappointed in you. <laughs> to, to be honest, I nearly did because... I know. That's why That's why there was the pause. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not great with food. Shouldn't be a chef. 
It's all right. It's okay. Today's guest we is Allison, the onion. <laughs> the onion. The blooming onion. onion from Outback Steakhouse. <laughs> oh, my God. That's hilarious. So that, that, that that's maybe a definitive childhood moment. Cool, here we are. Hi, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. Welcome back to the Artistic Beginning Podcast. I love that melody. Isn't that good? I found that. I'm pretty sure one of my favorite YouTubers said that in a in a thing because they didn't want to keep saying, hey, guys, because it's assuming. I have the same thing. I say, yeah, hey, guys, a lot as the- well. And so I've been trying to like stop by saying, hey, everyone, or hey, friends, but I really love guys, gals, and non-binary pals because it gets everybody. <laughs> it does, and it rhymes, right? so you can't go wrong. I know. thought you yeah. would enjoy that. Anyway, welcome back, everyone. Hi. You were just listening to Allison. Uh, she's great. Allison Chef. Yes, I've known her for the majority of my life. But yeah, she's a wonderful, she's a wonderful gal. And we talked about some really interesting, cool stuff in this episode. Yeah, she's had a very interesting path moving from being uh, an actor uh, focused on on the acting portion, moving on to directing and all of her other kind of paths on that road. Yes. A lot of railways. <laughs> Just Lots needed to get one, <laughs> one more <laughs> mode of transportation in there. But yeah, no, Allison's story is really great. One of the things that Allison talked a lot about in this episode is the value of being just being in the room, whether it's, you know, as the performer, as someone helping out, just having that teachable, those teachable moments where you get to watch the entire process or are so helpful, whether, you know, in the moment you notice that or not. Right. And Allison does a really great job of showing the uh, ways that you can do that. She held a number of different jobs in the industry, not necessarily something that you'd think is directly going to impact your directing career per se, but because of the way that she was able to leverage her educational style in a sense of observing people in action and learning from watching and, and seeing professionals work. It's really interesting and something that I truly value in people that are interested in getting involved in the arts. We could go into all the different ones, but we should let Allison explain because she goes through a couple of the ones and the different things that you can learn from each. So enjoy. Would you say that you had a a particularly artistic family and or a particularly open family to support your artistic endeavors? Uh, Yes and no. My parents were always like, you can do whatever you put your mind to. You can do whatever you want. And then they were very upset when I, at at the age of 18, packed up and moved across the country to New York. Um, They're like, well, we didn't mean that. (laughs) Can you do it closer to home? No, my parents were very much about what's your plan B? What's your plan B? It's something that's always bothered me because I feel like it's just, it's setting you up for failure when you say that. Right. You know, and, and yes, I think that there should, we should always have other things going on and you know, give, providing us with income and that we shouldn't always solely expect that the artistic income will be there. But when you're trying to pursue something and somebody says, oh, well, that's great, but what are you going to do for money? You know, what what else are you going to do? Like, that doesn't necessarily feel supportive mm-hmm. to me. Just to dig into this concept, because we've heard it a number of times, the idea of like, leading an artistic life, how much is it that you need a backup as an actual thing versus kind of a side hustle that's like not even a backup, it's just like a supplemental income stream. Like what's your stance on on that kind of approach to how you're leading your life? Um, so every day job I've had, every side job I've had, 
it has all informed my art and my artistic life. And of course, when I was like 19 and, you know, selling t-shirts at Beauty and the Beast, I was like, what am I doing with my life? This is so unfair Um, in my dramatic 18-year-old way. But like that led to a job working as a wrangler and that also led to me working for infrared and those were two day jobs that really informed my career and my choices as an artist and that was my training i went to school as well but like my real training was doing those jobs and observing and being in the room and and having the privilege to be in the room as kind of a fly on the wall so i'm all for like you know do what you got to do but and don't don't limit yourself by thinking oh i can only do this one thing you know if i'm not doing this one thing that i'm failing because <laughs> i think that's that's also an unhealthy mindset yeah and a very heavily held one yes mm. yes <laughs> unfortunately yeah it's very much yeah. the mindset of if you're not doing the one thing that you plan to do then you're a failure which you know with the arts is very hard to <laughs> right to do you know right I, I wasn't familiar with the infrared. Oh, so infrared is the headsets that are at the back of the theater and they connect directly to the theater sound system. Mm. They're actually required by law as part of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Yeah. And so I was a representative for them. So every week I would be put at a different Broadway show and I would mm. watch the same show basically eight shows a week. And in that, I learned so much. I learned how, you know, an audience reacts. What was really interesting was watching an understudy go on and seeing what kind of a reaction they would mm. get. You know, they've had a fraction of the rehearsal time and they're not as familiar with a role, you know, usually. And, you know, right. sometimes they would try something different and it would be – and the audience would would respond, you know, positively or or vice versa. And it was just – that was such a learning experience for me. And I did that for – three years or four years I want to say on and off but I was at a different show almost every week and so the opportunity to see a show every night of the week and and learn from it was huge of course I didn't appreciate it at the time but in retrospect I was like wow I learned so much from doing that job and I made connections too I met people doing that when you're like working in the theater and you're known as you know a colleague you you meet people you meet actors Mm -hmm. you meet company managers you meet the stage managers and then like from seeing me do that job then they I would I was asked to do other things so that's sort of what I mean by by who I met Mm -hmm. you know and and then to also dig in a little bit deeper onto the maybe not appreciating it part that that you mentioned was it that that you were just kind of taking it in as it was and wasn't really you didn't go into it intending to learn a bunch of things. Is is that kind of what you no. meant? No. I was well, I was young. I was very young. Again, I thought it should be me up on that stage. It's so unfair. Right. I'm stuck here watching and they're up on the stage. And I mean, you know, get over it. I was dramatic. But it's hard. It can also be it, it, it's hard to watch somebody do what you want to do. Uh, but essentially I learned from them. I learned how to, you know, how do you deal with a crazy audience member? How do you deal with when everything goes wrong or how do you tell a story more effectively if you've been thrown into like what 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 do you prioritize when you're thrown into a role or you have to like downsize everything because you know half your cast is out and i was able to witness that as an audience member and i got to see what worked and what didn't work that's kind of cool 
kind of being able to experiment with some like understandings of trial and error and not having to be the one that does the testing. You can just kind of observe and and see what works. Did you see a lot of shows with the same directors having created those pieces and like, could you see different styles? No. So I was at, for like three months, I was on this rotation of Kiss Me Kate, Fosse, and Susical. Oh, wow. There was a point in time where all three of those were on at the same time. And those are obviously three very, very different shows. Yeah. You could see how thorough Michael Blakemore's directing was with Kiss Me, Kate. And, mm. and they had a lot of people coming and going throughout the time that I was there. And they were all so consistent in their performances. But also, they also, I felt like they were really able to bring who they were to the performance. So that was interesting. Like that you know that was also a blessing to be able to to be on one show for a long period of time and see those consistencies and and the choices that were made by the director. Fosse, I mean there were like Fosse like, there were so many people coming in and out of that show just because it's a dance show and people get injured. But that was interesting because that audience was mostly foreign and didn't speak English. Oh, interesting. And so watching how the actors really relied on their physicality to tell a story as opposed to the words they were saying, obviously, like all of that was there, but I would watch them kind of play around with that to get a response. And that was an interesting thing to observe. And then Susical was mostly children. But what was cool about Susical was like the cat in the hat. There were a lot of actors that played the cat in the hat while I was there, and they were all so different. Bill Irwin, I believe, originated the role, and he's a a clown. And then Kathy Rigby came in, and she's a a gymnast. They're both playing to an audience, uh, a younger audience, and the ways that they sort of manipulated the audience, that's kind of a terrible word to use, but the way that they used their strengths to interpret that role, they were both very different Mm. and both were excellent. So yeah, so it was an interesting rotation to be on. I'm curious about the differences and or similarities of what you learned from doing that job and also from wrangling and being a guardian because you're on the same show for an extended period of time backstage during the rehearsals. It's kind of a whole different situation. I think I learned everything about directing from being in the room as a guardian. I learned that there are some directors that know how to talk to children and there are some that do not. Do you have any examples of how not to speak to a child? Yeah, sure. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, like it's a lot of like using big words that they don't understand and then being like, mm. why aren't you doing what I said? <laughs> I told you to right. conceive the moment and like, or whatever. <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> you know, and a kid is going to sit there and smile and nod and be like, yeah, yeah, I totally understand you. And they have no idea what, what you're saying. I, I worked with one director who, who just was so incapable of communicating with mm. the children and then would blame the kids for his inability to communicate And and that was special. But honestly, like a lot of the directors I worked with were pretty amazing. At one point, I worked on La Boheme with Baz Luhrmann. And we had a kid in the cast, little eight-year-old Ben Pacman. Love Ben Pacman. Mm -hmm. Who, he was the kid who was like, you know, are there any questions? And Ben would immediately raise his hand. And, you know, Baz would wait till the end. And, of course, Ben was still there with his hand up, his other arm holding the hand up. And and Baz would be like, yes, Ben, what? What what do you have? What do you have to? What's your question? And Ben said, "My mom told me that when I'm on stage, 
I'm in the center and everybody can see me or something like that. And, and Baz was like able to take that and turn it around and, and, and be like, you know, Ben, you're right. When we're all on stage, all eyes are on us, but we're all a team and we're all doing this together. And what the story you're telling is informing the story of, you know, the person next to you. And that builds a bigger story. And and he was so great about taking, like, you know, and obviously that wasn't entirely what Ben was trying to say, but <laughs> he was able to take something from that and make it something for everybody, which I think is a really great quality in him. And I mean, and that's kind of how he ran his his rehearsal process in general was like, this person has a question and I'm going to answer this person's question, but here's how it applies to all of you as well. There were a lot of moving parts. And I mean, everything was done in super titles with that show. And he rehearsed it by, he would have the actors speak the super titles in English, like act out the scene using the super titles. And mm. then we would go back and do do it um, sung through, you know, marking, obviously. But that was sort of how he built that, which is a really, like, that was a really incredible process to be a part of. I learned so much about lighting. Like, <laughs> he would stop and be mm. like, okay, wait. Look at how Gilles, his light, his eyes are hitting the light. Okay, everybody just observe that. Can you, now Gilles, look down. Okay, now look up. Okay, now look down. Okay, did everybody see the difference there? And it was like, he would like give these little, you know, master classes in, <laughs> in lighting or acting or sound or whatever. So that was a really cool room to be in. I also worked on Billy Elliot for almost two years and there were 27 children in that show. So we cycled a lot. through a lot of <laughs> what well, we, we, we rehearsed a lot. <laughs> yes. Because yes. children grow as they should. So it was so interesting to watch Julian, Stephen Daldry's assistant, work with the kids and the resident directors too. I learned a lot from BT McNichol and Mark Schneider because there's no like one size fits all acting technique. I mean, in general, mm -hmm. we know that. But, like, especially right. when you're working yeah. with kids, it's so hard to find what resonates with them. Like, you know, you've got the kid who's, whose parents coach them within an inch of their life, and they're they're very rehearsed, and they sound very schmackty. And then you've got the kid who's, like, mature beyond their years, and, you know, you can kind of talk to them like an adult, and you find, you know, what, work, you know, what works for that other kid is clearly not going to work for this kid. And we also had, we had a lot of dancers who didn't necessarily have a background in acting, but they knew how to express themselves physically. And so it was, it was figuring out how to, like, that communication, how to communicate with, with that person. So, so that was just fascinating to watch. And I learned so, that was my, like, masterclass in directing, was being a guardian on Billy Elliot and getting to mm -hmm. learn from all of, all of the, the directors and the actors as well in that room. Do you remember when you realized that you wanted to start heavily pursuing a directing career? Yes. So this is going to sound so arrogant. I can't wait. <laughs> but my, no, my, so my ex-husband was an actor and he did a lot of regional theater and I would go to watch him perform in a lot of these shows. And that like the choices that were made <laughs> by the director, I was, you know, all the various directors and I'm not all of them were, were bad, but there were a lot of choice. I was just like, why did they do that? Like there was one production, she was in a production of Into the Woods. The witch had her big, you know, last midnight 
number, mm-hmm. but she was singing like upstage behind a tree. <laughs> I was like, mm. why did the director put her there? That makes no sense. And then her dress caught on fire. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm guessing they had her up there because that was the only place they could do the pyrotechnic effect. But like, right. Mm. But it's like you have to weigh your options there. Like what's, you know, what's serving the story better? The fact that she can, you know, go up in flames at the end of the song or that she should be front and center singing that song. You know what I mean? Like it was, right. it was a lot yes. of those moments where I was like, okay, I would have done that differently. And here's why. And I just found myself saying that so much that I was like, I should be doing this. I I could do this. Mm -hmm. And I just started asking around and, you know, I asked to assist people that I knew. And I had some very gracious people who were super generous with their time and let me assist them and let me pick their brains afterwards and be like, you know, okay, so why did you make that choice? And here's what I would have done. Why did you do this? You know? So it's a mm. lot of, it was a lot of asking questions. And then I was a performer for most of my 20s. And part of my also wanting to transition was like, I just wasn't feeling the performer thing. I was also working at Billy Elliot at the time. And I was, you know, working backstage eight shows a week. And I just find doing that routine of eight shows a week can be a little mind numbing. I loved being in, anytime I was working a rehearsal, I loved it because I was in the room. It was cre- I was creating. And then I found anytime I was backstage, I was like, oh, this is so boring. But I was, again, I was still performing and I'm like, I, I don't want to do eight shows a week as a performer. I want to, you know, be involved in the creative process. That was what excited me. So, and, you know, just a a bunch of other things. I moved out to LA and I was 29 and a size four, but in LA world, I was an overweight senior citizen. Oh, that's so true. We all are. (laughs) Aren't we all? (laughs) We all all are an overweight senior citizen. Oh, retweet. But just in in being in that environment and, and, you know, oh, I'm going to go to the gym again today because that's interesting because I need to be skinny. I mean, and I was already skinny. Yeah, it's not for the right reasons. It's Yeah, yeah. and it just everything became about appearance and and not about craft. And look, hats off to everybody that is fighting that fight (laughs) because it's not easy. I just, it wasn't for me. I started getting directing work while I was out in LA. Ironically, I kept flying back to the East Coast to direct Summer Stock. And that's just sort of the path that it took. And that was kind of my transition. And th- and after a couple of years in LA, I was like, yeah, I'm done with this acting thing. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I, I mean, it's just, I mean, being an actor is a lot of work, especially being a musical theater actor. Like you're constantly mm. in voice lessons, you're constantly in dance class, you're constantly in acting class and you're constantly, and then you have to constantly promote yourself. And it's just, it, it was just, it wasn't for me. And again, hats off to everybody who is is doing that because it's it's so not easy. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for actors and for what they do on a daily basis. I love that. You mentioned all the things that you were doing when being a musical theater actor. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that that you do to either promote yourself or or get work as a director? What are those steps to a person that, (laughs) like myself, who... Yeah. No, like there's no direct path, right? Like how no. how are you so, doing it? So what's really hard as and I didn't realize this when I kind of made that definitive decision like okay, I'm a director now and that's what I'm going to do. When you're an actor, there's auditions. Like you can go to an audition to try and get a job. When you're a director, no auditions, no like open call for directors. It's all who you know. It's that there's a catch 22 of like, well, 
we have to have seen some of your work, but you can't see some of my work if I can't get hired to show you some of my work, you know? And it's very, Mm -hmm. I also moved, I lived in Los Angeles for a while and then I moved to Boston for a couple of years. And every region has their own, you know, like they have their own people. And to try to like break through that and I don't fault these people for for any of this like you want to work with somebody so when you're when you're hiring somebody to lead your ship and to be in charge of everything you want to know them you want to know who they are how they work what kind of a product they put out and it's so difficult as a director to get your work out there every job every directing job I've gotten is because I've been referred by somebody else I've worked for. I have tried mm-hmm. the blind submissions. I have tried the fellowship app. I mean, I've done all of that. And that's it's that's just never worked for me. But every job I have gotten is because somebody else has vouched for me and recommended me for the job. Do you feel like there's any way to change that? Are there other ways that you could get to that path? I don't know. I wish that there was some something in play. Like, I wish that being an assistant director was a thing regionally. You know, it's obviously a thing on Broadway, but it doesn't really exist outside of that. And I think, you know, to get people to know who you are and to get to know your work, I think assisting is a great way to do that. And places just people, regional theaters just don't hire assistants. They can't afford to pay them, first of all. If they do have an assistant, I find that it's usually like a Lort Theater that's attached to a university and it's a grad student who's assisting. And that's great. That's a great, you know, if that's a thing, great. I just wish, I wish that it was something that was a more common practice across the board because I think that would be a great way to, to network and to really, to learn, you know, to learn as a director from other directors, but also just to get people to know who you are. But I don't have any solutions. (laughs) I don't, I, yeah, I wish that there were easier ways. Like, I wish that I could have a mentor that I could just call and be like, hey, I'm directing this show and this issue came up. And I do have people that I can go to with those kinds of questions. But, you know, I wish that, that there was maybe a more formal arrangement of that, either through the union or through, I don't know, the business in general. But yeah, I wish something like that existed. In some ways, it's nice how insular the arts community is, but sometimes it can be very exclusive and not in, right. a, in a good way. It's hard to break in, and especially in what you were saying about being in smaller communities, it's wonderful that they have the same people that work all the time and they have that core center, but it would be great to give somebody else a chance too because you have no idea what they could bring to the table. Right. But I also understand the, on the producing side, like how much risk is associated with that. Oh, 100%. You know? in, all, in all capacities. Like why risk possibly something? Yeah. I just wish there was a better system. Yeah. Or some system for that matter. Where <laughs> I was just about to say, yeah. I was like, there's a system? <laughs> <laughs> some system that would facilitate that better. Yeah. Yeah. You should create one. I don't know how that would happen, but why not? Do it. <laughs> you know, I have been very vocal with the SDC and I and they've been mm. great. They've they have listened to everything I've had to say and I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm sorry, I hope I don't sound like I'm complaining because I'm not. I just I'm so frustrated. And they've been great about trying to figure out how you know, like we hear you, we hear the same thing from other directors. We're trying to figure out how we can facilitate making this a better process and experience for everybody but it's it's just so hard and i don't think you know i didn't go to school for directing but the the directors i do know that that went to school i think find it even more challenging because they're they're being let out Mm. into the world and they don't have 
any resources. They have the people they went to school with that will, you know, vouch for them and hire them for things. But as far as providing them with a network in the business, I haven't seen that yet. Hey, everyone. Just wanted to pop in here before we get to our final questions and give you guys a little bit of information about what Allison is doing uh, now and a little bit about how to reach her. So Allison's Instagram is at Miss Chef, M-S-S-E. H-E-F-F. And her website is www.allisonchef.com. Very easy ways to reach her. Yeah. She's also got a great podcast that's starting up called Anxiety and the Artist. Mm-hmm. We are super excited when we were talking with her uh, in this episode, actually a little while ago, she was just starting up with it and there are a few episodes out. So be sure to go check her uh, podcast out. Yeah. All right. Let's jump into our final questions. Starting off with the first question, what is the hardest thing about pursuing the arts? Tenacity, I think. Having to constantly hustle and finding that balance of being a human being, but also putting yourself out there. All right, Allison. Yeah, all right, gosh. <laughs> this, is, this is my favorite question. <laughs> very serious. Yeah. It, it's a very serious question. Or it can be very... Uh, uh, Lighthearted. Of, However yeah, you want to light- take it. Yeah, you know, you... <laughs> You go, you you get the, yeah, yeah, just, yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm going to cut out that blabbling that I was just doing. I have no idea what the hell oh, that Oh, please was. keep it in. Please keep it in. The, yeah, you you do it. Uh, yeah, yeah, do yeah, it, do you, it, do it, what you quotes want. Quotes got yeah. it. It's, it's, um, okay. Um, all right. So what keeps you up at night? How am I going to pay the bills? <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. yeah, no, really, that really does like, that really does keep me up. Truth. <laughs> Is there anything that kind of like you, you either tell yourself when you think of that and then you're like, that either gets you back on track? I usually have to remind myself that it's three o'clock in the morning and there's <laughs> nothing that can be done about it right in this moment and to calm the fuck down. That's yeah. very valid. <laughs> And, you know, usually, like, because it's the middle of the night and you're sleep-deprived, you're not thinking reasonably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and worry starts to creep in. And and then when you wake up, you're like, why was I worrying about that? That was stupid. You know? So I, I, it's just reminding yourself to calm down and to breathe. And, yeah. And, and, and then you breathe. <laughs> and then eventually you fall back asleep. Then you breathe. And then you go to back to sleep. And you don't look at the clock. The key is to not look at the clock, because if you look at the clock, mm. you're screwed. Well, if I fall asleep now, I'll wake up, I'll have three hours of sleep. If I fall asleep now, I'll have two hours and 45 oh my minutes God. of sleep. If I fall asleep now, <laughs> that's just the Yeah, that's, that math. Yeah. Right? <laughs> no, I do that. I do that in my regular day-to-day. I'm like, okay, if I have this thing at this specific time, I have to like backwards track and be like, okay, I need to get this done before then, and then I need to do this. So that means right. I need to wake up at this time. <laughs> Which means I have two hours to sleep or whatever. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, I purposely don't have a clock in my bedroom for that reason. Oh, interesting. No clock in my bedroom. No alarm clock. You know, we all have phones. And I don't have to, like, pick it up and look at it. Like, whereas, you know, all you have to do is open your eyes and see those bright red numbers glaring at you. And you're like, yes, Yeah. You know. Yeah. (laughs) No. Yeah. And there's nothing worse than waking up, like, a half an hour or an hour before your alarm is supposed to go off. And you're like, well, do I just get up now or do I go back to sleep and possibly miss my alarm? Yeah. 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 It's a a struggle. (laughs) Struggle is real. We all share it. (laughs) It is. It is. It is. Oh, goodness. All right. Our last question. You ready? I'm ready. 
To a person that might be interested in pursuing the arts while still working a nine-to-five, what advice would you give them? Do it. And and understand that your nine-to-five is like, what's sustaining you? And that's okay. It's not going to be easy. Like, you're going to be tired <laughs> a lot. <laughs> but you should do it because we all deserve to be creatively fulfilled and, and also, like, have a roof over our heads. So both are important, the nine-to-five and the creativity. Hey, thanks for listening. For more information about the podcast, visit our website, www.artisticpodcast.com. If you liked the episode, do us a favor and share it with a friend. It's the best way to help people find our podcast and will help support the show. For updates on new episodes and content, you can follow us at The Artistic Pod on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next week. See ya.